We're in Luke chapter 15 now, and this is a favorite chapter of many of you, I expect, and a very famous chapter, at least in times past. People who weren't otherwise terribly familiar with the Bible may well know the story of the prodigal son from this chapter. And we see in this chapter three parables. And the theme really is God's persistent searching love for the lost and his joy when they are found. Now you might have captions in your Bible or may have seen a list of parables. They might be called the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. I think it could be better if we called them the parable of the joy over finding the lost sheep and the joy over finding the lost coin and the joy over the returning lost son. We perhaps don't think about God's joy very much, just as in times past we've seen Jesus rejoicing. We don't think about Jesus being joyful very much. We may tend to think of God as more of a grumpy old man or a mean old miser. Or if we think of the joy of God, we might picture it him more like a silly, jolly Santa Claus type of, of joy, really happiness or giddiness. But true joy is an attribute of God and something we especially see when he saves his people. Just listen to one example in Zephaniah. We don't go to Zephaniah very often. Zephaniah 3, verses 14 to 17. It says, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. So God exults over his people when he saves them. And you also know Hebrews 12.2. It says that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And I think that's the, the joy in, in redeeming his people and being with them forever in heaven, God's right hand who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now we as Christians, of course, are commanded to rejoice. Philippians 4.4 is probably the most obvious. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. But joy is not something we just generate on our own. It's not just grin and bear it. Joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit. That is, it's a fruit that comes from the Spirit. So the source of our joy is not our circumstances, not even our our heart, but the source of our joy is God himself, that joy he produces in us. And it's a joy that comes from who he is and what he has done for us. So let's look at this chapter and see what brings God joy. And we'll look at just the first 10 verses this morning. Luke 15, verses 1 to 10. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? 
When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, back to verse 1. We see here the listeners. The listeners. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Now what a beautiful picture this is of people who want to come to Christ and hear him. They're not here to shut him down. They're not here out of curiosity to, to see some some healings. They're not here to get some free food. They're here to come near and listen to Christ. There's something about Jesus that made these people, these outcasts of society, want to hear him. Now, if you look back at the end of Luke 14, just one verse previous, Jesus has spoken, and now he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Same word here, H-E-R-E, same word in verse 15. He who has ears to hear, or he who has ears to listen, let him listen. And verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1 says they are there to listen to him. So immediately after verse 35 of chapter 14, we hear, or we see rather, tax collectors and sinners hearing, and the scribes and Pharisees not hearing. Now let's remind ourselves about tax collectors, or you might have publicans in the King James Version. They were not popular in Jesus' time, not very popular today either, but probably less popular back then. We know a couple of tax collectors by name from the Gospels. Who are they? Matthew and Zacchaeus. Good, we'll see him in a little while. From Luke 19, Zacchaeus was called a chief tax collector, and he was rich, and he was in the city of Jericho. Now, what's the problem with tax collectors? Well, obviously, the fact that they collect taxes is a major portion of that. But they're also connected with certain kinds of people. For example, sinners, like here in Luke 15, and other times, it talks of tax collectors and sinners. We also see them linked with prostitutes in, in just terms of uh, those who might be sort of considered low in society. Jesus says in Matthew twenty-one thirty-one, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. So when Jesus wanted to think of who are the, the lowest sinners in people's minds, or the, the greatest sinners in people's minds, he thinks of tax collectors and prostitutes. Or Gentiles, even. Matthew eighteen seventeen in this passage about church discipline, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, that is, those that don't listen to the, the two or three witnesses, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what specifically was it about tax collectors that made them so uh, reviled by society? One resource said this, these middlemen paid an agreed-upon sum in advance to the Roman officials for the right to collect taxes in an area. Their profit came from the excess they could squeeze from the people. So beyond the normal animosity people have towards those who collect taxes, there was the fraud. In Luke 19, 8, Zacchaeus 
says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give him back four times as much. And then way back in Luke 3, some tax collectors are coming to John to be baptized, and they said, Teacher, what shall we do? And John said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. So they would squeeze people if they could to get more taxes than they were really allowed. Besides that, they had a connection to Rome, and they would have a lot of contact with Gentiles, and so they, they would be seen as siding with the oppressor with Rome, also lots of defiling contact with the Gentiles. One writer said this, this is an expert, uh, Albert Edersheim from the, the uh, 19th century. Alfred Edersheim said this, according to the Talmud, the Jewish law written in the centuries after Christ, tax collectors were not allowed to be judges or witnesses in law courts. Their charitable gifts were not allowed to be received, and they could even be excluded from the synagogue. But despite the hatred that many had for tax collectors, Jesus reached out to Matthew and Zacchaeus and others like him. Matthew apparently was literally minding his own business, and Jesus said, follow me. So Matthew wasn't already following Christ when he was called. Jesus walked by Matthew's table and said, come, follow me. So that's tax collectors. We also see here in Luke 15, 1, sinners, tax collectors and sinners. These may have been harlots, thieves, and other people the Pharisees considered defiling, or perhaps the kind of people who were cast out of the synagogue, or maybe just those who weren't as scrupulous as the Pharisees. Maybe it was everybody but the Pharisees were considered sinners in their eyes. In any case, these people, these tax collectors and sinners, were not the kind of people the Pharisees thought a rabbi should be associating with. But these defiled people are the ones who are listening to Jesus. They are the listeners. Well, now we have the grumblers. Verse 2, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So we talked about the beautiful picture of people listening to Jesus, but that's marred by these grumblers. Now, it's kind of funny because these Pharisees and scribes were fine in chapter 14. the beginning, Jesus ate with the scribes and Pharisees, remember, at the leader of the Pharisees' home, but this is too much. You can eat with us, but when you eat with these sinners, that's, that's terrible. This word grumble was used in the Greek Old Testament of the Israelites in the wilderness, grumbling against God. And this grumbling is not the first time, and nor would it be the last, that the Pharisees grumble at Jesus' associations. Look back at Luke 5. I mentioned earlier Jesus calling Matthew. Luke chapter 5, verse 27, gives us that story. Luke 5, 27. After that, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi, or Matthew, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Over a couple of chapters, Luke 7, verse 36. Another setting uh, at, a, at a feast, 
Luke 7.36, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. So we have Jesus dining with Matthew and his friends in Luke 5. Now here he's dining with a Pharisee. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, probably a prostitute. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who was touching him, that she is a sinner. Now it doesn't use the word grumbling here, but he certainly was grumbling. So we see here that when these tax collectors and sinners are with Jesus, they listen. In this case, they repent. And what do the Pharisees and scribes do? They grumble, they criticize, they judge, they condemn. Now after our passage Luke 15, we'll look at chapter 19. We mentioned also Zacchaeus earlier. Luke 19, verse 7, after Jesus has called Zacchaeus down from the tree, he received Jesus. And verse 7 says, when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And then again, we see verse 8, that he's repenting, and he's showing his repentance by giving back what he has defrauded people, and he was saved. So again, we see a tax collector, a sinner, being saved and repenting at the word of Christ. But back to these grumblers in chapter 15, it's bad enough that Jesus receives sinners. He even eats with them. That may imply some sort of fellowship, maybe even a kind of an insult. Jesus eats with us, that's good, but if he eats with sinners and tax collectors, well, that's almost putting us on the same footing. Jesus, as a, a good rabbi, should be glad to eat with us, but he should resist and even being in the presence of these sinners, these, these low people. Well, we see here that this is one of the great differences between Jesus and the Pharisees, where the Pharisees tended to separate themselves from sinners. And remember, one possible derivation of the word Pharisee is separated ones. So these Pharisees separated themselves from sinners. What did Jesus do? He received them. Listen to Matthew eleven eighteen and 19. Jesus says here, John, that is John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, Jesus was not a gluttonous man or a drunkard, but he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, we don't have time to read this, but you'll recall in Luke 18, there's a parable where Jesus compares a Pharisee unfavorably to a tax collector. And the introduction to that parable, Jesus, it says in Luke 18.9, Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now you can maybe imagine Jesus developing a parable in his mind. He wants to give a parable about those who trusted in themselves that they're righteous and view others with contempt. What's, what's the obvious person who views others with contempt? If you want to choose a character in a story, Pharisee is the obvious answer. But then Jesus, is, as he explores in his mind this parable that he's going to tell, what's the opposite of a Pharisee in Jewish society? I want to find the, the polar opposite. Well, in Jesus' mind, as he developed the, the parable, it's a tax collector. So 
in those societies, you're going to find the polar opposite men in society. You might find a Pharisee and a tax collector. But what's the end of that story? The tax collector went to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. So again, Jesus sort of flips societal views on their head. It's the Pharisees, it's the sinners, it's the the harlots, or the Pharisees and the, and the tax the the scribes who are on the the top, and yet they're the ones who don't listen to Christ. The the tax collectors, the sinners, the harlots, those people that are despised by the Pharisees are the very ones that hear Jesus and are saved. And so Jesus, as he is confronted by this grumbling, he has a response. And in doing so, he gives us three parables, three stories. I mentioned before, the parable of the lost sheep. Again, what we typically call it, we could also call it the parable of the joy over the finding of the lost sheep. Verse 3, Jesus says, told him this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's a very similar parable in Matthew 18. And try to listen, sort of follow along in Luke 15 as I read Matthew 18. You'll see see some parallels, and I'll, I'll bring out some differences. This is Matthew 18, verses 12 to 14. And Jesus says, What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now, just some differences. In Matthew, the sheep has gone astray. In Luke, the man has lost the sheep somehow. We don't know exactly how. In Matthew, the flock is on the mountains. In Luke, it's in the open pasture or the wilderness. In Matthew, it says he may find the sheep. It says if, he tur- if it turns out that he finds it. But in Luke, the man keeps searching until he finds it. He doesn't give up searching. In Matthew, the man rejoices, but he rejoices himself. In Luke, he rejoices and then throws a party for his friends and neighbors. And in Matthew, the conclusion of Jesus' parable is that it's not the Father's will that any perish, but in Luke, we see that there's joy in heaven over the repentance. I don't know a lot about sheep, but sheep out by themselves in the wild are very vulnerable to predators or many other dangers. I was reading about something called cast sheep. And these are sheep who have rolled over on their back and can't turn over again. We expect that from turtles, right? But sheep, especially if they have a lot of wool, maybe the wool gets wet in the rain, and they roll over and they can't right themselves. They're stuck there. If nobody comes to help them, they will just die of exposure or they'll be eaten by a wild animal. So these sheep, in many other ways, need help from shepherds. Another thing that Luke does in his story here, it's a beautiful picture, that the man lays the sheep on his shoulders and carries him back. If you've seen sort of gauzy pictures of Jesus on people's walls, it's either him knocking on a door or carrying a sheep on his shoulders, isn't it? That's the good shepherd. That's a beautiful picture from John chapter 10. The sheep perhaps is injured or tired or frightened or the man just wants to 
hold the sheep because he loves it so much and is so grateful. You know, just maybe this is not a good analogy, but if you if your child gets lost and you find them, do you just sit in the back of the car? What do you do? You hold them. You hold them as tight as you can, and don't want to let them go. This is kind of like that with the sheep. This man was perhaps. Oh, well, he has concern for the sheep, perhaps afraid for the sheep, but he loves the sheep, and now that he has the sheep back, he wants to stay close to it. The shepherd is kind and strong, and he doesn't drive or drag the sheep home. He carries it. I think of our, our, our dogs get out of our, our yard and they run, and they will find their way back eventually, but I have, usually have to go get them. And do I carry my, my animals safely home with great love? No. I, I drag them home. I, I, <laughs> I send them on their way. Go, go. I put the leash on them and I pull them if I have to back to the house. Uh, not a lot of tenderness, unless they were injured perhaps, but, um, this good shepherd is better than me as a, as a pet owner. He loves the sheep and will take care of it and throw a party when it comes home. Now, I found something interesting as I look at how Jesus introduces these parables. Look at this in verse four. He says, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and so forth, or verse Eight, what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one? When Jesus says, what man among you, or what woman, it brings the listener into the story. It's asking a question. He wants them to think about this. It's not just a, a regular story, but he's asking them to think about this, this situation that he's giving to them. But it also condemns their for the, for the attitude. They would certainly search for the sheep or search for the coin out of concern, but they don't care about finding the lost sheep of the house of Israel. These scribes and Pharisees would rejoice and call for celebration when finding these relatively unimportant things like a sheep or a coin, but they grumble when these eternal creatures made in God's image, these tax collectors and sinners, repent and follow Christ. So by asking this question, what man or what woman, he's, in a sense, bringing them into the story, but also condemning them for their lack of compassion for these lost souls. Well, what is Jesus trying to say with this parable, this parable of the lost sheep? Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, that is in the same way that this man rejoiced, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Repentance is a common theme in Matthew, or sorry, Luke rather. Um, last time you saw it was in Luke chapter 13, we have this story about the, the Galileans who were, who were slain by Pilate, Luke 13, verse 1 to, to 5, and then the, the Tower of Siloam fell and killed these people in Jerusalem. And Jesus says there, uh, are these people greater sinners? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So whether you die by an evil man like Pilate, you die by accident, something falls on you, or if you die in your bed of old age, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We also see repentance from the beginning of the Gospels, Mark 1, 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then a few verses later, verses 14 and 15, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So John the Baptist preached the baptism of repentance and so did uh, Jesus. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, what is repentance? 
we often picture it of you're going one way and then you turn and go the other way. And that's a good illustration. You turn from sin and go the other direction. Uh, the preacher from a couple centuries ago, Charles Simeon, says this, In repentance, we are made to see our guilt and danger. We gladly embrace the mercy offered to us in the gospel and give up ourselves to God to be governed by his will and be saved by his grace. So we see our guilt, we embrace the mercy of the gospel, we give ourselves to be God, to give ourselves to God to be governed by his will and to be saved by his grace. That's what repentance is. And what happens, back to Luke 15, verse 7, what happens when a sinner repents? It says there is joy in heaven. And this is the joy of God I mentioned earlier. It's not just the joy of the angels, it's the joy of God. And when God rejoices, his people rejoice and his creatures rejoice, his angels rejoice. God rejoices and heaven bursts into song. The scribes and Pharisees should have known that God was this kind of seeking, loving shepherd. I think we all know Isaiah 40, verse 11. Like a shepherd, God will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, we have a picture of these faithless shepherds. God says to, to Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Verse 4, those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains, and on every high hill my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. These Pharisees and these scribes had a duty as those who knew the law of God, who were well-respected in the community. They were part of the synagogue life. They were the very ones who should have been strengthening the sickly. They should have been healing the diseased and binding uh, binding up the broken and and bringing back the scattered or seeking for the lost. But instead, with force and with severity, they have dominated them. That's the kind of shepherds these scribes and Pharisees were. They were the opposite of God. This is what God says, verse 11, of the kind of shepherd he is. Ezekiel 34, 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day, and in the, when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. In verse 16, it says more about how he takes care of them. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. So God will take care of his sheep, the sheep that were lost, the sheep that were hurt, the sheep that were frightened. God takes care of them. And that's what you expect these Pharisees and scribes who were supposed to be experts in the law, but instead they didn't. They separated themselves from the sheep. They rejected the sheep. They didn't help them in the least. But their reaction isn't surprising, is it? Because when Jesus quotes Isaiah 29 and condemns the scribes and Pharisees, Remember that they elevated their tradition above the word of God. And Jesus said in Matthew 15, This people honors me with their lips, but their what? Their heart is far away from me. 
the Pharisees and scribes had a heart that was far away from God, and so we wouldn't expect them to have a heart that was the same as God's heart for sinners. Well, who then are these 99 in Luke 15, verse 7, these 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? There's various views of this. Some think that they're already saved people, that is, they're already in the fold, they're safe there. Some think that it could refer to the righteous in heaven. Some even think it could be the angels. That's completely out there. But based on the context, I think these righteous persons who need no repentance is really the self-righteous ones, like the Pharisees. We see Luke 18, 9, I read this before. Jesus told this parable to some people who viewed them or trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. These are the people who are self-righteous. And we see in the last parable, and we haven't read it yet, we'll look at it next week, Lord willing. In the last parable, the elder son has remained in his father's house and claims to have always obeyed him. Do you think in this illustration that the elder son was a saved man? He wasn't, was he? he you can tell by his attitude towards his father and towards his, his lost brother that this, we're going to talk in terms of salvation, this elder brother was like the Pharisees. He wasn't saved. He was in the father's house. He was un, under the father, father's roof. He ate the father's food. He obeyed the father's law to, to an extent or claimed to. But this one isn't saved. So just saying that these sheep in chapter, or verse 7, who are in the fold, you might say, or the nine coins that haven't been lost are actually saved persons. I think that Jesus is being here kind of ironic and and we might say, we might put the righteous word righteous, righteous in quotes here. The 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That, that might be the idea here. So the, the ones who are in the, the fold, the 99, are the self-righteous ones. The nine coins that are not lost are the self-righteous ones. And the, the elder brother is a self-righteous one. Well, our second parable here of the lost coin. Let's read that again. Verse 8. What woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now this parable of the lost coin and the next parable of the prodigal son are unique to Luke's gospel. And it has a similar meaning to the parable of the lost sheep, but let's look at some of the new features. First of all, this woman has ten silver coins. It's a Greek term, drachma. It was a silver coin of those days, and roughly equivalent to a denarius, which is one day's wage for an average worker. So think of what you might make in a day and put it in a coin form. That's how much she lost probably not a, a rich woman either. Some commentators think that this may have been a headdress, so you could take some coins from a dowry and you make a headdress out of that, put it on a chain and put it on your head. Some think it might be worn as a necklace or kept in a small bag. In any case, this woman didn't have a lot and lost a tenth of it, and it was a significant loss. Imagine explaining to your husband when he comes home from work that I, I lost this silver coin that was part of the dowry for my dad, or I lost this, I had this expensive necklace where you imagine 10, per, or 10 times your daily wage carrying around your neck. 
or just losing it out of your, your bag. How do I explain this to my husband? What am I going to do? It was a significant loss to her. So she lights a lamp. Now we get spoiled, I think, because we can turn on a light and anywhere we want to go. We have a flashlight on our, our phones if we need it. But these homes in these days, especially for poor people, may have no windows or very small ones. They didn't have glass like we have today. So imagine a, a dark place. You might open a door or something. It's hard to get light. And so you have to light a lamp. And these lamps are not that good either. They give off a weak light. So you have to squint and, and look down at the, all the cracks and crevices. And with dirt floors, they didn't have, ordinary people didn't have you know, tile like we have today, um, carpets and so forth. It would be easy on a dirt floor for the coin to be covered in dirt. So it could take some searching to find it, some sweeping, listening maybe for a little clink as you, as you sweep the, the dirt. But after careful searching, this woman says she finds it, and she also calls her friends and neighbors and asks them to rejoice with her. There's a slightly different ending. In verse 7, there's joy in heaven, it says. In verse 10, it says there is joy in the presence of the angels of God, specifically mentioning the angels. And again, it's not just the angels rejoicing. It's God's joy flowing out to his servants. The angels rejoice because... God rejoices, and when God rejoices, the holy angels rejoice in response. And I find this an interesting insight into what's going on in heaven and what angels know about goings-on here. You might recall 1 Peter 1.12. It shows that angels are interested in God's plan of salvation. Peter says, speaks of the, the gospel preached to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The angels long to look into this plan of salvation that God has created and is unfolding. Hebrews eleven or one sorry, Hebrews one fourteen, it says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So angels are sent to minister to God's people. And so when somebody is saved, that means more glad work for the angels. Imagine an angel in heaven saying, okay, this is totally speculative, but you can imagine now we have a new person in God's kingdom. Somebody, So-and-so has been saved, and now we have an angel who has a job, maybe more than one angel. Their job now is to care for this, to minister to, we have in Hebrews eleven fourteen to minister to these new believers in Christ, these people who have followed Christ, and now the angels have more work to do. And that's glad work for them, because they are glad when God is glad. Well, any closing thoughts or any questions before we have some closing thoughts? Well, let's talk about some of those things as we reflect on this parable of the lost sheep and parable of the lost coin. And in fact, the attitude of the Pharisees in verses 1 and 2. These Pharisees and scribes, were they speaking the truth or were they lying? They were speaking the truth, weren't they? He receives sinners and eats with them. But he does more than that. He receives sinners and he saves them. doesn't just eat with them, but he saves sinners. The sheep in the first parable was lost, and the good man sought and saved his sheep. In the other parable, the coin was lost, and the diligent woman found her coin after much seeking. And there was a world of lost souls, and the triune God sought them and found them and saved them. We know that God sent his son. John 3.16 says that. God so loved the world that he gave his son that we might 
not perish but have eternal life. And the son willingly went. We saw earlier in Luke 5, 32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And the discussion about Zacchaeus. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so we have the Father sending His Son to save sinners. We have the Son going to save sinners, going willingly. And the Spirit, we also know, is part of this process of salvation. It's the Spirit, we see in John 3, who gives the new birth. And so when somebody comes, repents, comes to faith in Christ... It's the Spirit that does that work in that heart. So Father, Son, and Spirit are all part of the salvation work that makes the angels rejoice. So as we look at Jesus' words here, what is your response going to be? Well, if you're not lost, you don't need to be found. If you're not a sinner, you don't need a Savior. But we are all lost because of our sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We are all lost, sinful sheep. We need a Savior. The Pharisees and scribes thought they didn't need a Savior. They were already righteous. But we know that we are sinners from God's Word. All of us are sinners. We all need to be saved and be carried back into God's fold by Christ himself. And when... We come to faith in Christ. If you don't know Christ and come to faith in Christ, heaven will rejoice. God and his angels will rejoice to save you. If you approach God with true faith and repentance, he will not refuse you. Sometimes you think, well, I'm such a sinner, God must not want me there. God may not be happy to see me. Maybe he'll let me into heaven, but it'll be grudgingly. He'll, he'll kind of scowl at me. All right, get inside. But God, it says here, will gladly give you entrance to heaven. If you come in repentance and faith, ask him to forgive you, ask him to save you on the basis of Christ's death for you on the cross, he will gladly do so and welcome you into heaven. Another thing to think about yourself, if you do know Christ, what's your attitude towards the sinners in your life? Put that in quotes, the sinners in your life. Do you tend to keep them at arm's length or do you want to receive them? Now, we don't want to take this too far. There are lots of warnings in Scripture about hanging around the wicked. Psalm 1-1 is, is an easy one. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. There's a kind of dangerous, ungodly fellowship you can have with the world. We don't want to do that. But Jesus, in Luke 15, had a gospel purpose in his times with the tax collectors and sinners. He wasn't carousing with them. He was preaching the gospel to them. And so there are opportunities we can have to be with sinners and we can be gospel witnesses to them, not not involving ourselves in their worldly pursuits, their sinful pursuits, but as a way of ministering to them, of preaching the gospel to them. We, we need to have some contact with the world. And so what is your attitude towards sinners in your life? Do you want to keep them away from you or do you want to bring them in to preach the gospel to them? Another question we could ask ourselves, honestly, what would be your attitude if a, a sinner walked into church this morning? We said, oh boy, that person sure looks sinful. Maybe they, they're dressed inappropriately or 
have a sinful sort of t-shirt or just a, a look about them that cries out sinner, we might say, well, I'm all dressed nicely and I, I shaved this morning and took a shower and comb my hair and I, I'm, I'm ready to worship God. And that person obviously isn't ready to be here. They shouldn't be here. That's easy to do, isn't it? Um, happened in James' day. He talks about those who would welcome the the rich man, but the poor man they would keep at arm's length or want them to sit at your, at your feet. If somebody who looked like a sinner came in here this morning, would you be appalled or repulsed? Or would you be glad that someone who needs Christ would be able to hear about him? The same thing about somebody who looks maybe all buttoned up. Somebody comes in a three-piece suit and dressed uh, appropriately, perfectly, but doesn't know Christ. They also need to hear the gospel and believe. Whether they look like a sinner or not, they need to hear the gospel. And we must welcome them into our presence to speak the truth of God to them. Another thing to ask ourselves is, do we see the lost as enemies? And I've, I say this a lot nowadays, and it really concerns me to see so many Christians, not necessarily here, but outside. We see the, the a Christian attitude, or not, actually it's a non-Christian attitude, isn't it? To see the, the world, the, those, the lost, as enemies. And there's a sense in which the world is an enemy. And But we don't want to see individual uh, people in the world, individual sinners, as our enemies. What do you do with enemies? You fight them. You try to destroy them. You try to defeat them. Some people want to fight and condemn the lost instead of reaching them. And so we can criticize uh, lots of things going on in our society. We can uh, even say so in strong terms that this is what God has called us to do as, as, as his creation. This is how we ought to live. But we don't want to... Uh, to hate them, to, to have our condemnations ring out louder than our love for them in presenting the gospel to them. So let's not see the lost as enemies, but as object of our, our pity, but also our affection and love and objects of, of gospel witness. And then one last thing to think about is what are you doing to reach lost sheep? And this is convicting to me. I don't do enough for sure. But you could say that Christ has deputized us to find lost sheep on his behalf. Or to use Paul's terminology, he has made us ambassadors of Christ. We are ones who are taking Christ's message, Christ's help to those who need to hear the message, who need the help. And there are many reasons to do this work of reaching lost sheep, but what's a greater one than doing something that brings God joy? When someone comes to faith in Christ, it brings God and heaven joy. And what greater desire could we have to bring God joy? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage, even though it's hard to read because it's convicting. We, I'll say for myself, can be more on the Pharisees and scribe side of this equation and less like one who would sit at your feet and listen to you. We pray that you would Give us a heart for the lost sheep of this world. If there are any lost sheep today in our presence, if we have those here who have not repented and come to Christ, may this be their day of salvation. May they see the love of God in Christ and believe in you. May the Spirit do his work in hearts today to bring them to faith in Christ. And if we've had a a judgmental attitude, even a hateful attitude to those who are outside the fold, may we also repent of that and love those 
who need Christ. Help us to be bolder witnesses and better examples of what it means to, to live for Christ. May we not be the, the grumblers and the scoffers and complainers, but those who sit at your feet and listen, and those who rejoice with you and with the angels in heaven when sinners come to faith in Christ and repentance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.